the material we're studying is of very, very important uh, implications and applications for the church, the biblical definition of the church. I believe that in this moment of history, and it's probably been true for a lot longer than this, nothing could be more important than defining the church, the message of the church, the constituency of the church, the leadership of the church. What is the church? And it's my contention that church history, as is typically read and taught, understandably so, is not the history of the church, but the history of the organized institutional church that historically has been the force that pushes the gospel to the side. And that um, the church, as defined in the Bible, has often been groups of people here and there scattered, sometimes within what's called a church, that love the Lord, study the scriptures, share the gospel, and have a vital knowledge of Christ are attached to the head and the situation from what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians and in Acts and so on is totally different and what I mean by that is when we think of a church the first thing that comes to our mind is a building but remember they didn't have buildings did they it's not a sin to have a building but the building isn't the church it's one possible gathering place. Secondly, in the time of Acts, and when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, the extraordinary thing would be when someone would be in the service, several of which they hoped for, but who didn't even know the Lord. That's a good thing, but it was the extraordinary, not the ordinary. So in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, if you all prophesy, if an unbeliever is there, uh, he'll be convicted. This would be an ideal outcome. He'll be convicted and fall on his face and say, God is among you. Why? Because you're preaching the gospel. That's what prophecy is. That's what Peter, look at the day of Pentecost. What did Peter preach? He didn't preach the laughing revival. We were just looking at that. He preached repentance, faith, and he went through the scriptures to show, show that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So the reality today, and I've seen this um, in, in a number of places where I've been, when I was younger and I had traveled more, went in um, whole big churches would have a little group within where you could come and teach the gospel to them. I've seen that many times. The big mass are not Christian. So doesn't that mean that we need a definition of the church that would help us understand what we're talking about here? So when you say church and everybody's thinking spiral, big uh, spires and incense, and uh, you notice that church architecture is always pointing up like that? 
it's as if the Tower of Babel is being rebuilt. We want to reach up into the heavens because it's so hard to believe that just ordinary scriptures and prayers and gospel preaching and exhortation from scripture, the prayers for one another, encouragement of one another, the fellowship of the saints, wherever it may happen, that that could be the church. And so when you see the videos about church, you see all this other. And so that's my burden, very, very burdened to define the church biblically. So that's why in God's providence right now, we're in Acts 20, which is an essential, essential part of where the Bible is defining the church, her message, and the leadership. So now we're on to verse 25. So we'll go slowly. There's a reason for that. We want to look at the cross-references. I can't hurry over this. This is some of the most important material that defines the church. Let's look at verse 25 of Acts 20. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. So last week I showed some synonymously parallel statements that people divide into different things to the confusion of the saints. Notice we had the gospel of the grace of God. Then we had the message of the gospel. And now we have the preaching of the kingdom. So do we divide these into three or four different gospels for different people, or is Paul still on the same topic? Now, I don't have, I, I'd have to launch another PowerPoint to show the slides from last time, but I laid out some parallels to show that they're synonymously parallel. Do you have that last one? Uh, do you see where I had a parallel that included the other things on one of those slides? If you do, go ahead and read it. I want to get these mics dialed in anyhow. I had one slide that just had comparisons. Maybe I just thought I did. All right, if it's not there, then it's not there. Is it on the back page? Maybe it was the week before that. All right. All right, that's the one I'm thinking. It doesn't tell you what it is. All right. Let's go back then. Um, Jessica, if you would go back to like verse 21, Acts 20, 21 through 24. Read that so we get the context. Okay, 20, 21. Testi 21, yes. 21 through 24. Yeah. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit of except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life as dear to me, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Okay, so that's the one there. I think the other ones we haven't got to. 
So that one says to testify the gospel of the grace of God. All right, that's one statement. Now we have preaching a kingdom. And I think in the future, somewhere I have all of them, there's another way of saying the same thing. Now there's different nuances, but not different gospels. How does someone become a citizen of the kingdom of God? Somebody want to discuss it over here? I got to get that mic dialed in anyhow. Hello? Yep, there it is. Uh, The Holy Spirit convicts them and transfers them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Yeah, transfer it into it through the gospel. Colossians 1, 13, 14, good answer. So there's not some, see, some people say the gospel of the kingdom is only for the Jews, so the rest of us who aren't Jewish can ignore that topic. It's false. That's false teaching. Paul didn't know that. Okay? Colossians 1, 13 and 14, those transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son aren't just Jews, um, and so on. It's it, it, Jews and Gentiles who believe, whoever they are. So when he's preaching a kingdom, he's preaching in terms of entrance that is the gospel. And we'll see as we go along. So preaching the kingdom is thematic. And Luke-Acts, as I've said often, is a two-volume work by the same author, Luke, who was at times a traveling companion of Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit and wrote Luke-Acts, as a theme and a consistent and throughout Luke Acts the Holy Spirit comes upon people and when that happens they speak forth words that we should pay attention to and one of the themes is the fulfillment of Joel so early in Luke we have the the preview before Messiah is born about the Holy Spirit comes upon a person and they speak about the mighty deeds of God. And then there's previews in Luke. And I mentioned in Luke 4, the big speech in Luke was where Jesus comes into Nazareth, his hometown, and preaches from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, parts of it. And then today this is fulfilled in your hearing And at first he gets a good reception. And then when he starts to predict what will happen, which is rejection, they reject him and turn against him. Luke 4, 443. He said this, Luke 443, take note. You hear the references up there. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Now, I think I mentioned this, but these things have to be repeated because you probably haven't been well-versed in this. Um, Preaching the kingdom of God there, like Paul here in Acts 20, you go back to verse 18, and you go back to where he's preaching from Isaiah uh, 61, has to do with release from sins. Those who are released, forgiveness is the word in the Greek for release. He came to proclaim release from sins. And 
the, the bondage that they were chafing under was Roman rule. And that, they wanted release from Rome. He came to give release from sins. Do you see the difference? And he left off the part in Isaiah 61 about the day of vengeance of our God. It wasn't there. It's in Isaiah, but he didn't cite that part in the synagogue. Why? Because vengeance comes later. If you don't want to be around in the day of vengeance with your sins, you better have the release from sins first. Because otherwise the vengeance will come on his enemies, which is everyone who doesn't know him. So then when he made it more clear, he's rejected in his own synagogue. Now look at Luke 8 and verse 1. Soon afterwards, he began going around from city to city and village, one village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him. Luke 8, 1. I'm just showing you this is thematic throughout Luke Acts. Luke 9, 11. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So Luke 4.43 said he was sent for this purpose. Luke 8, Luke, he continued to preach this. But he wasn't preaching the defeat of Rome. He was preaching the release from sins and repentance. Because judgment begins with his own people. And they didn't want him. They, they rejected him. And then, so that's uh, Luke 4, Luke 8, Luke 9. And then, of course, we have in Luke 24 at the Great Commission, another mention of this. But look at Acts 1, 3. I'll read that to you. To these, now after his resurrection, before his ascension, as narrated in Acts, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. By the way, Luke was not neo-Orthodox. That's an anomaly in time. But let me, anachronism. Uh, because neo-Orthodox says nobody can really know. You can't present evidence because evidence is too flawed to convince anybody. You take a blind leap and just believe it because that's what you want to do. Make it real by your blind leap of faith. no. Luke in Luke 1 talks about the exact sequence of truth and facts that he had examined. Read Luke 1. Here in Acts uh, 1, convincing proofs. There's valid, objective evidence that Jesus really did die, as they said. He really was buried. He really was raised and presented himself to many witnesses. If reality is the state of mind and cannot be verified in objective world beyond the mind of the individual, then Luke is talking nonsense. But if there is enough evidence to make every person culpable for their own unbelief, as Luke claims, then it's obvious that reality is not a state of mind. Right? Now, that 
probably doesn't sit well if you've been into a lot of modern Bible studies. Somebody mentioned last week here in the class, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? How does that make you feel? What do you think about that? That's subjectivism. Okay? And so we see in the public discourse, well, that's my truth. Well, on the day of judgment, the only truth that's going to matter is God's. What did God say? And so the idea that reality is a state of mind is an attack against the gospel. And don't, here's the other thing. I heard from some in seminary, I had some great teachers, and that's by God's grace and providence, but there were some that would say, well, you can't preach that way now because people are postmodern and they don't accept that kind of thing. Well, the message isn't determined by what people want to hear. It's determined by what God called us to preach. Okay? So, preach it anyhow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if human beings aren't any different than they ever were, and if you just study the whole Bible, you'll know that. Adam and Eve had the same problems as we do after the fall. Yes, go ahead. A long time ago, you gave you had a sheet which you made a copy for me, and it was every time uh, the word kingdom was used in uh, Acts, uh, Luke and Acts, and it was pages and pages of, of of times that that was used. I was looking for it, couldn't find it. Anyway, what I did find was th this goes to the this goes to the uh, the fact that you're always talking about the way that Luke his writing style and the uh, important is this is Luke's travel narrative in reverse parallel structure remember that yeah Luke yeah. Uh, 951 right all the way to the triumphal entry or the right it's not so, called triumphal in Luke yeah there's only the disciples that welcome him yeah so the way that that was set up real quick was uh, starting in Luke 9 was the eschatological events and then it goes follow me what shall i do to inherit eternal life prayer signs and present kingdom conflict with pharisees money conflict is not yet and is now the call of the kingdom in israel the nature of the kingdom what, and then the middle is right in and then the middle is the, luke 13 yeah luke 13 and then it goes reverse yeah, so the, order. In, in that kind of a structure it's brilliant uh the greek luke's handle on greek is unbelievable great literature in its own right, and it's the Holy Spirit-inspired truth. The beginning, the middle, and the end of the kind of a chiastic structure are the emphatic places. And it's about rejection. Brother, yeah. I think the interesting thing is we've seen from your teaching lots of those structures, but here we have the reverse structure. So it just they use both. It makes it more interesting, but they correspond all the way. Look at, uh, so I'm in Acts 1, 3. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Paul mentions this sort of thing, that he appeared to witnesses in, in 1 Corinthians 15, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So they asked him about it, and he said the times and epochs are fixed by the 
Father's authority, Acts 1, 6, and 7, but you will be my witnesses. So we don't know when that'll be. We're, we are in the church age. And so when the kingdom of God is preached in the church age, we're preaching the gospel, we're pre preaching the person and work of Christ and forgiveness of sins and entrance as far as citizenship. Philippians 3, I think verse 20 says, our citizenship's in heaven. It's very clear in Hebrews and uh, in Acts that Jesus is ruling in heaven at the right hand of the Father, God the Son, and that he intercedes for us. Let me ask you something. Are you comforted to know that our high priest Jesus is interceding for you? Praise God. Are you comforted to know, according to Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you? And who would you rather have praying for you, Jesus and the Holy Spirit or Benny Hinn? Or I don't know, whoever's... I'm, I'm dating myself. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I must be old to think of that name. The young people, they have a whole different world they live in. Okay, so let's go to the end. Now, notice the, the last line here. I'll read that to you, Acts 28, 30, 31. Now, some people have falsely said the gospel of the kingdom was for the Jews. The Jews rejected it, so therefore it went away, and now something else is on the table. Now we're going to have a different gospel after the Jews rejected the gospel of the kingdom. Others say the kingdom would have come right then and there had they accepted it, but they didn't, as if even the kingdom's contingent on man. It's not, the, it's not what it says here. It's fixed by Father's authority. Now look at... Acts 28, 30, 31. This is when Paul gets to Rome, by the way, which was predicted by Jesus himself that he would get there. Acts 23, 11 says that. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Acts 28, 31. My contention is that this doesn't mean there's three or four or five different messages for different people. Luke is telling us there's one message for all people, and that is release from sins. Christ died for sins. He was rejected by his own people believed upon by people who had nothing going for them. Widows, orphans, lepers, Samaritans, demoniacs in, the, in gathering, um, whoever, and rejected by the important people who had the power and authority in Jerusalem. And that the interest to the kingdom wasn't for the political movers and shakers. It was for the simple persons who humbled themselves and said, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The 
people picking out places of honor at the table and a wicked sinner woman comes in and falls on his feet and the righteous one thinks to himself, well, this man's not a prophet or he'd know who this was. What prophet would be allowing himself to be defiled like this? And what did Jesus say? Her sins that are many are forgiven. Released. Ephesus, Ephemi. And so do not be deceived by those who say this is all different. This is this and this is that. When Luke is telling us it's the same message. Whoever you are, wherever you came from, whatever your past was like, however bad it was, however poor or rich, or whether you're a foreigner, or even some who were the Pharisees believed, a few, some, whoever, anyone who believes the gospel and humbles themselves and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need you, Lord. I believe these things. I believe in you. Those are the ones whose citizenship is in heaven. Those are the ones whose sins are released. Released. Or there's other words like redemption, other nuances, but of the same truth. And therefore, don't let anybody say this preaching of the kingdom. Paul's not double-minded. So when he was preaching the gospel of the grace of God in one verse and preaching the kingdom in another, it's not two different messages. I can't believe how many people are on TV trying to tell you that. Beware of this other thing. When a preacher does a verse here and it skips the context, then a verse here skips the context, and a verse over here, and then strings those together to make a message that would never fit. We just did a recording like that yesterday. There were some claims being made about Romans 8. We, it took four hours to get the computers to work right, but we finally had a radio show. And we just read Romans 8 and explained what it said. It doesn't say anything like what they say it says. Rather than he, the false teachers are saying, no, Romans 8 isn't about what God's doing for us. It's about what we have to do to help God make things happen. Whoops. <laughs> Whoops, yeah. But see, all of this would just go away if you just read all of it rather than part of it. Why would it be so bad to just tell people the whole thing that what God said here? So Paul ends up in Rome. If he somehow ditched the gospel of the kingdom, I want to know why he's still preaching it in Acts 28. Yeah, this is really kind of a simple comment, really. But everywhere we see the word kingdom of God, it's singular. Just one kingdom, not two, not more Multiple than one. Multiple ones, right. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So, right. you know, the Jewish people already had the prophets. They had all of that. They had all those advantages. So, so the, the method of reaching them with the gospel, they already had some foundation. They had the background material. Yeah, they had the foundation. And, and so that's where people get confused. Uh, right. But it's one kingdom. And it's we're the same in the, message in Athens. Yeah. But yeah. it's with different proof because they didn't have the Old Testament, but they still had culpability. And may I ask you this? If, one question, simple question, who's the king? 
Jesus Christ. You get an A. That's it. I get free coffee. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reading. I wish everybody could read so well. Um, one of the uh, sources I have that really helped me understand Luke X, Robert Tannehill, he, he, he calls this the reign of God. And by talking about the reign of the king, then the difference is where he's reigning from. And the claim in the New Testament is he's reigning uh, in authority, uh, Hebrews 4.16, at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's, he's reigning in the throne room of God right now. There's a day coming when he'll come back and judge his enemies and reign on earth during the millennial kingdom. So if you say the reign of God, because then, then you, if it's together more clearly in the sense that the only difference is he was on the earth preaching. He's the king who's walking amongst them, but the rejected one and he ascends to heaven the reign of God is there. He'll come back, and the reign of God will be literally on the earth. Does that make sense? Okay. Did we get through all? Oh, one more. One more slide. Philip said this in Acts eight twelve. No, this said this is said about Philip, Acts eight twelve. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ. They were being baptized, men and women alike. So let me reemphasize authorial intent. When anyone writes, the author determines the meaning, not the reader. That should be obvious, but it's revolutionary in our day. The postmodern says the reader determines the meaning. Honestly, you can see illustrations from that in everyday life every time you turn on the TV or the news. So objective reality says there are two genders, right? Male and female. Who determines what the gender is? At birth, yeah, God at birth, you are who you are. Postmodernity says reality is a state of mind, and so whatever I identify that's it. But that is, if you take that, as a matter of fact, if it wasn't just a rarity, there, oh, it's getting, you know, here and there, people do that. But if that applied to everything, everything from whether you need a fishing license, what the limit is, what's the speed limit, what does it mean to have a title deed, what's the mortgage on your house, what does it mean to pay it off? What is this like? What is that like? If you applied that thinking to everything, you'd have utter chaos. Civilization would disintegrate and life wouldn't be possible. So the only reason it even functions at all is that in a few rare cases, somebody tries to do it that way. But it's, ab it's absurd. So the author determines the meaning. 
objective truth from the scripture is telling us about God. And so here is what I mean by applying that here to Acts 8, 12. Because I see this happen. Some will say, well, Philip didn't have it right. Here's, here's something to think about. Did Luke write that because he thought Philip had it wrong? Let me read it again. Acts 8, 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Luke is telling us that that's what happened, and it's in keeping with the other things that happened. And the reason the apostles came from Jerusalem was to affirm that God had brought people in, in and that they were validly Christians, although there was an exception. If I, I, wasn't that the narrative of, of the Simon the Sorcerer in there? Okay, so if you can get that much... Honestly, if I could just help the church get that much, you'll be gaining something that'll help you the rest of your life because it's how we have to read the author's meaning. And you may understand the Bible better than most seminaries in America because they're grounded in the opposite. The reader determines the meaning. But that's not even valid. Luke is telling us that preaching the good news about the kingdom of God wasn't just for the Jews, because that's the point is it's going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other most parts of the world. That's the theme. How do you enter the kingdom? Repent and believe the gospel. How do you know you're in the kingdom? Because the blood of Jesus cleansed your sins. You're transferred from the authority of darkness to the domain of his beloved son, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He intercedes from, for you from the right hand of God, and you have assurance of eternal life, and you're, you're released from sins, and the Holy Spirit's at work in you, and you're being sanctified by the word of God. That's how it goes. Saying the kingdom of God doesn't mean that there's two or three different gospels. Verse 26. This one is one that uh, hopefully we can spend some time on because it's an allusion to Ezekiel. Mm. Therefore, I testify, I got to calm down, keep the voice for the sermon. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent from the blood of all men. Look at that. Look at what Paul said to the Ephesian elders who met him in Miletus on his trip to Jerusalem to be rejected. Now, why would he say to the Ephesian elders, I'm innocent of the blood of all men? What does blood guilt mean? What if you were guilty of the blood? What would that mean? I mentioned some passages here. Uh, it's... Uh, uh, someone look up uh, who wants to look up Ezekiel 3 17 to 21 Brian if you do that one 3, Ezekiel 3 17 through 21 that'll save me a little bit of reading and then I'll read Luke 11 
50 and 51 while, while you're looking that up. I got it here. You ready? Yeah, go ahead. Ezekiel 3.17, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hands. Yet, if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die since you have not warned him. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Okay, so there is the idea of blood guilt. Ezekiel was a real prophet from God and appointed by God and he spoke for God under the old covenant to the people. And it was his duty to proclaim what was true that God sent him to proclaim in order that those who didn't want to listen to Yahweh and go their own way and rebel would be warned. Now, this is helping us not judge things by the outcome. Judging by outcome is what created the seeker church. In other words, the outcome for the institutional church is the well-being of the institution. So if the coffers are full, the pews are full, people are happy, the building project is being funded, then that's a good outcome. But let me challenge all of us with something. This was the point of when I was writing about the secret church. What if you do that? And I know for a fact because I interviewed people who called me who were in churches where they'd been commanded not to preach the gospel. Literally, an evangelist was told by the pastor, you cannot preach about Christ in the parking lot. You can't do it at our classic car show we're holding. You can't do it. Well, can I do it in the Sunday school? No. Can I do it here? No. Can I do it out in the foyer when people are leaving? No. So the church is packed and the evangelist is told, keep your mouth shut about repentance, blood atonement, forgiveness of sins, the personal work of Christ. And I, I heard a recording of this, and the guy's wife is crying while the pastor's rejecting this. And, and he says, the pastor says, I think you'd be happier in a different church. All right, now, what Brian just read from Ezekiel, what are we Look at what Paul said. How did Paul say, I'm innocent of the blood of all men? Would he have been able to say that had he had a great uh, outcome for his classic donkey show? <laughs> I don't even know if there is such a thing. And I know they didn't have 66 uh, 
Camaros back in those days. I, I don't know what they would do. But uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> the point is, the reason he was able to say that was that he had warned them that if they don't repent and turn to Christ, their sins are still there. They're not released. They haven't gained citizenship. And that's just the baseline. How can it be? There's something seriously wrong when giant institutional churches are purposely forbidding people to tell about the blood atonement right there. So the big mission fields, unreached mission fields, are all over the world. But you know, one place is in giant churches where they don't hear. So if you want to be free from blood guilt, that doesn't mean everybody loves what you preach and they all come. It means you delivered the message. So that if, if people say, I don't need Christ, I'm not that bad of a sinner, I'm no worse than everybody else, I don't want to repent, I don't need blood atonement, that's on them. If we tell them what the truth is, we're, we can say this, innocent of the blood, yes. Yeah, this is, I'm just echoing what you're saying here, I guess. This is for every one of us, you know? I mean, I'm not Paul, I'm not the Apostle Paul. None of us are. But we were not given salvation just to sit on it. And we need to take this seriously. And I'll tell you, many years ago, something happened to me that, that made me think of this. I was, we had a neighbor. We were having a little campfire, you know, and this neighbor of mine who I'd had some, we had butted heads a little bit on some things. But he said to me, you know, I don't understand I don't understand the idea of God. I don't understand about it. And I didn't know what to say. I was not prepared. I was not, I was not uh, a good workman, okay? We're supposed to be workmen, approved workmen. And I was not. And that guy died within a week. <laughs> that kind of woke me up. And I think we all need to wake up and realize, take this seriously, and just do the best we can. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. But there's a real lesson here for all of us, I think. Yeah, our, our family story that I inherited, in a sense, through Diane, but her dad and brother, the family, heard a very eccentric, odd Pentecostal preacher to come into town. I mean, honestly, he was eccentric. Just back at, at the church where he's from in Iowa, different place, they had somebody to drive him around because he would just, he couldn't sit still long enough to keep his hands on the wheel. So they didn't trust him driving. But he's out there where these teenagers are coming out of a dance and he's there preaching, you need to repent, you need Christ. And the first one to respond was Diane's brother, Jim. And then they came to church and pretty soon it was his dad and Jim's dad, and I was, I was dating Diane. I ended up being the last one. And then eventually we had a coffee house and my brother Wayne came. But who would ever think that somebody would respond when the, the messenger was so eccentric and really lacked people skills? He did the same thing at our wedding reception. He got up and he was tearing into people. You're going to go to hell if you don't repent. 
Well, probably not what you do at a wedding reception, but uh, my dad says, that guy has more gall than anybody I ever saw. But so it is. Uh, I don't advocate just be someone who has compassion for people. You don't have to try to be that way. Whoever we are, most people that come to Christ do so through the witness of ordinary people, Christian relatives, friends, people they run into. That's how it happens. Let me quote Dr. Schnabel. He's got some great material. He says, the contrast of Paul's statement with his involvement in the stoning of Stephen, Acts 7:58, and the interrogation and imprisonment of followers of Jesus, Acts 8:3, is not strange, but an indication of the radical nature of God's forgiveness and of Paul's conversion. When he was indeed responsible for the blood that Christians shed when he, that is Paul, persecuted them. But his sin was forgiven when he received God's grace and Jesus' commission to bring about obedience to God and to Jesus Christ the Lord, Romans 1.5. A commission that he consistently and faithfully discharged since his encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, unquote. So that was very real for Paul. He himself wanted Christians dead. And Jesus said, this is corporate solidarity of the church. Why are you persecuting me? So Jesus said to Paul, he, wasn't, he was persecuting Christians, but they were his. If you know the Lord, you're his. And he intercedes for you. And we can count a joy when there's persecution because it's a sign that we do represent the king. They reject the king, they're going to reject the citizens of the kingdom as well. We don't have to be, we can be different ways, we just have to be honest and truthful. Um, okay, katharos is the word for innocent, clean. The catharsis, have you heard that word? It means uh, to be cleansed or to cleanse. I think it comes up in the sermon, if I remember right. So that's what innocent is here. Catharos, clean. Clean of blood guilt. Now here's a few cross-references of that. Luke 11, 50, 51. I didn't read that, did I? Well, if I did, I'm going to do it again. Luke 11, 50, 51. So that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Wow. Who is this generation? The people who had been given much, the promises, the fathers, the covenants, Moses, all of these things who rejected Christ, this evil and perverse generation, is the idea, but God saved a remnant. Verse 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. So Luke 11, 50, 51, blood guilt for killing 
the messengers who spoke for God. So that's where the idea comes from. Paul was like that. He was like anybody else that did that, but he was forgiven. And then the people who told him, told them not to do this, Acts 5, 28, in other words, before Paul's time, we, we gave you, they said, strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, which is Jesus. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And notice what the leader said in, in Acts 5.28. You intend to bring this man's blood on upon us. We want to reject Messiah. We already did. And by preaching this way, you're pointing out that we have blood guilt. So we've got to silence you. Do you think it's really bad now in our day that churches silence the gospel? It's really bad. Now, how is the unbeliever who looks around the United States of America, we have, or Western Christendom, maybe, because that one example came from Canada, and the UK has the same issue. Churches, church, Christians, and the message is anything and everything the world says as well. Echoes the world. The same stuff. So how do they know the difference? The only way they know is if the gospel is preached from the pulpit. And it's on the lips of the people who pray for one another and love one another are part of the fellowship. That's how they know. Yes, Brother Eric. I'm really going for the coffee today. <laughs> I have a question. I, you know, I think a lot of us do this. I, I, I look at something in the Bible, and I think I understand it, and then I try to argue a little bit with myself, and that Ezekiel passage to me, it's absolutely, it applies to us. It's all time. But the one question that I have, so in other words, I, I'm uh, totally in agreement that we have the possibility of blood guilt when we withhold the gospel. Uh, the one question that I would have is that that's uh, Old Covenant. Ezekiel was a prophet in the Mosaic Covenant. I think it's an application that applies now also, but I thought I'd just ask that if that's something that you'd like to address. I do. First, I've got to turn off my phone. I'm supposed to be a role model. I had my phone on. I heard our ring doorbell going. Someone's coming to watch Diane while I'm here. Um, let me address that. Yes, it does apply because Jesus said it the same way. Look at what I read in Luke 11, 50, 51. He applied it. He did apply it. Paul applies it. Right here, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. It's the same application. Paul was supposed to be a leader in Israel, and he wanted Christians dead. Applied to him. Uh, in addition to that, this is from the New Testament. This is from Matthew 34. Therefore, behold, I am sending your, you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues, persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous 
Abel and the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Yes. Now, let me point out something, and this came up in 1 Corinthians 3. Be aware that there are degrees of punishment, degrees of reward for the righteous, and degrees of punishment for the wicked. Now, we don't always know that or hear that. So what you have, one of the responses you get when the gospel comes up, and I got this from some pastors when I became a Christian in 1971, I went and talked to them in a liberal church, was that, oh, so all the good people that we know who are kind and they teach and they do their duty and they're paying their taxes, you're saying they're going to be burning in hell. Well, that's a valid implication, but it's assuming there's no variation whatsoever. These will, be, these will have a greater condemnation, it says. I don't see anybody in the book of Revelation complaining that God isn't just at the very end. There's things that we can't process right now. I, there's things I can't process right now because we only know what we have right here in the world we're living in. But I'm comforted by the fact that I read the book of Revelation, God's ways are declared to be just by the witnesses that are there at the end. We'll know things then we don't know now. We need to function on what we know now. What's the gospel? What's the terms? And this is all real. And the best thing anyone can do is be faithful in the realm that God's given us and trust him for the outcome. And God is a just God. But justice should, Luther really had a good point. God's justice should scare us. Well, that's what we were talking about on the radio finally. I had to change computers to do it. There are people who say there are no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Then the King James has who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. They change it to condemnation be a mental state. So if you really listen to the spirit, you'll feel better about yourself. And if you don't hear God talking to you, you'll feel condemned. So we did a radio show on that. Little, I don't know when it'll be out there. 30th of August, or August, January. I only wish it was August. Uh, 30th of January. And um, it's not, condemnation in Romans 8 isn't a state of mind. It's whether you're guilty before the judge. If someone's condemned after a trial, to a sentence, it isn't about their mental state, it's about their guilt or innocence, right? So if you know Christ, and your sins are forgiven, you're in Christ, there's no ultimate condemnation. In order to comfort the readers of Romans 8, you see that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, God is carrying us, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That comforts us, but it's because we've escaped from God's wrath. Yes. 
Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man wouldn't go along with that philosophy. The guy, oh yeah, was there, the dogs were licking the blood or licking up his wounds, licking his wounds. Is that the guy? Oh, the gulp. Yeah. Yeah. But see, beware. Don't allow the culture of the pagans to come into the church. We'll talk about that in the sermon because it's really what Paul's talking about. The church deals with the issues of the church. And when the thinking of the pagans come into the church, then everything's relative. And it's about our psychological state, not objective reality. We want to deal with objective reality. Okay, not simply thinking differently so we feel better. It's almost better if you have severe guilt sense that something isn't right. It may drive you to the gospel than to have false assurance. Well, let me give you a preview for next week. Oh, look at that. Now, let's, let's, given that preview, let's look at this again. Here is how the teacher, the elders that he's teaching, and uh, by implication, all of us are innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So is it fair to say that church leadership is obligated to declare the whole purpose of God, or is it optional? (laughs) I'll let you think about that for a week, and we'll pick that up there. Um, I'm strongly in favor of preaching the whole counsel of God. I think you already know the answer, but... And they say, well... You're preaching to choir, that's a waste of time. No, it isn't. In most situations, the choir's probably unsaved. <laughs> I'm not, we don't have one, so I'm safe by saying that, I guess. But. Okay, uh, God bless you, dear saints, and pray for Eric for his recovery uh, from the injury they had. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness, and may your words sink into our hearts and minds. May we encourage one another and pray for one another. Pray that the service upstairs would be honoring to you and encouraging to the saints and convicting to those who need to turn to you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.